Hello there. My name is Alan Mulhern. This is the Quest series, the crisis of our times. There's been a bit of a delay in this episode, principally because of an infection that I had, gratefully not the COVID virus, and the pressure of work. I'm a Jungian psychotherapist with a perspective in these podcasts to not only the individual, but to the collective. That is the societal, civilizational, and global crises of our time, which can only be understood with a systemic, wide interdisciplinary approach. In particular, I maintain that there are ten interacting crises, which I term the ten horsemen of the apocalypse, which are driving the global conjuncture. These are the economic, financial, political, social, technological, ecological, pandemic, military, conflict of ideas and spiritual crisis of our time. I believe the pandemic detonated the developing crises at the start of 2020 and I gave an outline of the sequence as 1. The approaching storm 2. The storm hits 3. Policy response 4. Economic and financial chaos 5. Fallout and emergence into a new world supposing we get that far. We are currently in a prolonged stage three policy response, whereby extraordinary money creations and debt are disguising the depth of the crisis. I believe many countries, including and especially the United Kingdom, followed by the United States and the European Union, are facing not a recession, but a depression, which has already started, but is disguised by dangerous defence mechanisms of central banks and governments. They can't bear to face the economic and financial catastrophe that they have created. So they extend the illusory medicine, which is only making the situation worse. The traditional political parties of these countries and regions are no longer fit to govern and new ones are required. The current podcasts are covering the various crises one by one. Today we update the economic crisis. The pandemic, of course, is having enormous recessionary impact on the Western economies. 2020 is expected to be the largest contraction in global output since World War II. But the seeds of an economic and financial crisis were sown some time ago. The capitalist or market economy is usefully seen in a dialectical framework, moving through the gales of creative destruction, which are booms and slumps. The idea that markets are a constantly adjusting equilibrium system is not accurate. In addition, the Western economies have not recovered from the 2007-8 crisis, but have disguised their immense difficulties by extraordinary levels of debt and money creation, which have only sown the seeds of the crises we are now in. The pandemic, serious as it is in itself, has therefore revealed the underlying crises. For this reason, I call it one of the horsemen of the apocalypse, which in Greek means the unveiling. The COVID virus is especially lethal to the old and clinically vulnerable. The younger are often able to surmount it. So too, collectively, in the current situation, the pandemic reveals those economies that are weakest, most vulnerable, most incapable of regeneration and fast adaption, and that have poor leadership. 
Britain and America, for example, have some of the worst records of infection and death rates in the advanced economies. Well, the pandemic reveals. The general economic scenario over the last decade prior to the pandemic has been characterised by slowing or stagnant growth rates and historically low productivity growth. Inequality of income has worsened since the 1970s in the United States, the UK and China and many other countries, though not in the European Union. The Western economic system has not truly recovered since the 2007-8 crash. There has been a little GDP growth in the European Union, for example. While the US has had better growth rates, these are still low by comparison with 50 to 60 years ago. Any apparent gains after the 2007-8 crash were made possible by debt. So, in my opinion, this was not real growth at all. It is paid for by the damage of debt to the economy and to future generations. On the text preamble to this episode, there are various web links. If you cannot see them, I put them on my website in the section entitled More. The first link is to the World Bank and is a graph showing that global growth has been falling for more than 50 years. You can adjust the button at the bottom of the graph. At the far left, it will display from 1961 to 2019, almost 70 years. As you pull the button to the right, it will shorten the time period. The graph measures global growth of GDP, the total global output. You will see at a glance that the trend is downwards from the high growth rates of 5-6% to on average in the 1960s to growth rates of half that amount from 2012 onwards. If you were to exclude Chinese growth rates, this would be much lower. Western economies, as well as most EMDCs, that is, emerging markets and developing countries, have run out of gas. Yet this was supposed to be a time of great technological change. This is rather mysterious. Moreover, the graph does not show the 2020 figures, which would, of course, show an even deeper decline of the world GDP, estimated at minus 4.5% by the World Bank for 2020, which is a very conservative figure, I believe. Again, the exclusion of China's positive growth of 2.4% even during this pandemic year would have left, if omitted, an even worse figure for the rest. Another disturbing feature is the recession of 2008-9, following the GFC, the global financial crash, and that of 2020, have taken the slump into negative growth rate territory. If this were a cardiac chart, the doctor would surely be very alarmed. Again, examine the chart and adjust the button to focus on the period since the GFC in 2008. There was a crash of world GDP in 2009, followed by a recovery in 2010, followed by another decline in 2011 and 12, where the growth rate subsequently stagnated at low rates until the crisis of 2020. But this very poor growth situation globally is in despite of the phenomenal expansion of money supply, credit creation, government loans, injections into the financial system, and also some injections into the real economy. 
that is, fiscal and monetary policy. It should be clear that the real global economy, and especially the Western economies, were in trouble prior to the pandemic. It so happens that most news and financial commentary has become obsessed with stock markets and the financial system. Reports on the real economy seem far less important. It's the financial system that bedazzles everyone, where the extraordinary profits lie. However, this financial system has become disconnected from the real economy because the huge money creations have found their way into the financial markets. Thus, the real economy has floundered, while the stock markets are on steroids in a false boom. This is serious enough, but salt is added to the wound, so to speak, because the financial system expects to be totally bailed out by the government should it collapse. And that falls either to the taxpayer or to future generations through the increase in debt or subsequent inflation. So the rest of the economy has to pay for the stock market excesses. And this has now become the norm, the new normal. This is an unsustainable situation. The prosperity project that has underpinned the Western economies has stalled. Certainly, the top percentiles of the economic pyramid have increased their share of income and wealth, while the lower percentiles have lost position. This is one of the main causes of the political manifestations of divisions and radical differences, which are surface phenomena that manifest an underlying malaise. The rise in national and other types of debt are continually disguising the massive problem or sickness in the system. For example, a debt of $100 growing at 5% a year for 12 years would compound into a debt of $180, that is, an 80% increase. A growth rate of GDP output over the same period, starting at 100 and increasing by 1.5% a year, would compound into 120 that is, an increase of 20%. Ignoring inflation for the moment, and in this example supposing that the debt were 100% of GDP, that they were equivalent to one another, at the starting point, then 12 years later, it would hardly be accurate to say that one had real growth of 20%, although GDP nominally had increased 20%. One should surely take some account of the 80% increase in debt, but this is never done in economics. The economy surely is going backwards by having a faster rate of debt compared to GDP increase. In this example, we can see that an annual 5% increase of debt can be lethal in a few years with low GDP growth. Perhaps one does not discount the growth rate by the full amount of the debt, since it is hoped that inflation will reduce it or that it will somehow magically disappear or reduce. Real growth surely has to be the difference between nominal growth and the rate of inflation, plus some allowance for the increase in debt. In other words, what we have since 2008 is a disguised long-term recession, since the increase in debt far exceeds the paltry growth rates. In the United States, the national debt, that is government-only debt, at the end of 2020 was 2775 trillion dollars. A trillion is a thousand billion.
which was an increase of 40% in four years, that of the Trump administration, and has been exploding since the 2007-08 crash. By way of comparison, the United States gross domestic product, its total yearly output, at the end of 2019 was $21 trillion. In 2020 alone, the total debt of the United States, that is the government debt, local state debt, municipal debt, corporate plus private debt, moved from $71 trillion to $80 trillion, which is practically the size of the world output. This is an increase of over 12% in one year. The debt explosion is accelerating in 2021, with the new administration of course, making unheard of fiscal commitments. Not only ordinary injections into the economy, but helicopter money, just post people checks, all to be done through borrowing. The GDP level in the United States and most other countries outside of China will drop in 2020 when the figures arrive, while debts will have increased, thus further deteriorating the debt-GDP ratio. America is in a highly dangerous Alice in Wonderland situation. Unfortunately, it is by no means the only country to be so. The Western crisis of our time is very closely linked to the policies that were pursued in Europe and the United States after the 2007-08 credit collapse. We can also add Japan to this group, since it has suffered similar problems for many decades and indeed is a paradigm worth contemplating. The excessively high levels of government support, the huge monetary injections, have not solved the problems of the Japanese economy, which has remained like a patient on life support for decades. There is simply no point in pumping more credit, money, liquidity, loans or grants into a moribund economic structure. Japan's national debt is over 260% of its GDP, a monstrous figure. Its high growth rates of the 1970s completely disappeared long ago, and for many years now these hover a little above zero, despite huge and growing national debt and the subsequent spending excesses, low interest rates and the like. On the surface, this appears to have achieved nothing. But in a deeper sense, the economy has been damaged by such policies. Creating a paralysed economy has been its consequence. In 2020, Japan, although still a powerful and large economy, was bottom of the league of developed economies for productivity. However, these same policies are now adopted in the EU and the United States. The massive problem with Keynesian policies, that's injection of demand into the economy, is that they take a special case, a lack of aggregate money demand, and presume that by raising it by fiscal and monetary policy, then GDP will respond positively. To put it simplistically, increased output is supposed to respond to increased demand. Frankly, this only applies to limited cases. At the best, it is short-term, but in the main, it is naive, mistaken and dangerous. Japan is surely the case that illustrates this point. When the limited Keynesian model is lifted into an ideology, it becomes a mantra, a fixed way of thinking and removed from reality. The manipulation of aggregate money demand, 
was discredited way back in the 1970s, when it was widely observed that it caused inflation in the long run, rather than an increased output and employment. A lag between increased money supply and prices of about 18 months was suggested by Milton Friedman back in that decade. Suffice it to say that by the end of the 1970s, monetarism, not Keynesianism, became the order of the day. However, monetarism, which implied that inflation was always a monetary phenomenon, had one corner of its teachings set out in Friedman and Schwartz's classic Monetary History of the United States, written in 1963, that claimed that the Great Depression could have been avoided if the Federal Reserve, American Central Bank, had substantially increased liquidity to the banking system in the United States. Friedman and Schwartz wrote, the Fed was largely responsible for converting what might have been a garden variety recession, although perhaps a fairly severe one, into a major catastrophe. Instead of using its powers to offset the depression, it presided over a decline in the quantity of money by one third from 1929 to 1933. Far from the depression being a failure of the free enterprise system, it was a tragic failure of government. Unquote. Ben Bernanke, who was head of the Federal Reserve at the time of the global financial crisis, the GFC, of 2007-8, had studied this text closely and had taken notice of this crucial piece of advice. He commented to Milton Friedman in 2002 in a conference, quote, I would like to say to Milton Amella, Anna Schwartz's co-author, regarding the Great Depression, you're right, we did it. We're very sorry, but thanks to you, we won't do it again. Just think of it. The Great Depression could have been avoided, in their view, not only in the United States, but in the world. Even the rise of Nazism could therefore have been avoided, since its vote only increased after the Wall Street collapse and the spread of the Depression into Germany. If only the Federal Reserve had voted for much greater support to the banking system in 1930. However, this crucial justification for the monetary creations, rescue policies and interventions since the global financial crisis neglects a crucial point, quite clear in Friedman's original comments on the role of the US Federal Reserve Bank in 1930. He claims that they failed to compensate for the one-third drop in money supply that followed the Wall Street crash and the collapse of many banks. But the situation post-2008 is totally different because the central authorities of the major economies have expanded their money creations continually, not as a compensation for a drop in money supply in their economies, but because the financial system has been continually fragile and because the governments are continually increasing their debts. In other words, there is something desperately wrong with the financial system and the commitment to ever higher debts, and by implication the government policies that are continually bailing out the financial system and the economies, thus perpetuating the deep malaise. But what happens if the supply structure of the economy is not capable of responding? When it is rigid and unresponsive to fundamental change, locked in its old habits, its sclerotic institutional structures, its ageing demographics, 
What happens when it has a moribund banking system, corporate structures that are refused to change, a managerial elite who treat their corporations as feeding grounds for personal gain, when large parts of the population expect to be paid because they're simply entitled, irrespective of whether they work or not? What happens when not only does increasing injections have less and less positive impacts on the economy, that is, have diminishing returns, but destroy its capacity to function properly, when it has created a parasitic and zombie economy? What happens when a country has corruption growing throughout its system, when the quality of its education declines despite increasing qualifications on paper? What happens when there is a growing underclass of unemployed, or the modern precariat, existing at the margins of the economy, barely subsisting, kept quiet on alcohol, marijuana, drugs, pornography, televised sports, video games, gambling, who still have voting rights and become alienated from the prevailing system, full of resentment while the financial elites grow ever richer through artificial creation of money supply and stock exchange bubbles that are created by the government of financial elites themselves. What happens when the institutions of society, finance and corporation elites in the examples just given, serve themselves, instead of being obliged to serve the economy first? As Adam Smith originally envisaged the market system, what in short happens when economies become incapable of growing for deep structural reasons and increasing aggregate money demand through creation of more debts, or even by outright money creation, does not solve its problems, but rather worsens them. Then such economies stagnate, lose their compass and sense of direction, and find themselves in great political danger, as there is a clash of the forces of change and the reaction against that change. Arnold Toynbee likened the passage of civilization to a climber ascending a rock face, ledge by ledge. If a civilization cannot creatively face its challenges, if it cannot renew itself, if its leadership degenerates, then it is in danger of falling off the ledge and the great efforts of generations can be undone. Either that or it stays on the ledge for some time in an arrested condition. However, to return to our specific theme, Although the failures of the hyper-Keynesian policies of the Japanese economy are well known, that does not prevent the EU, the UK and the US from following identical policies. These lessons of failure and the dangers of these policies have been ignored. China is a rather different story. It has experienced extraordinary growth in recent decades and is the only country in the world to emerge from the pandemic year 2020 with a significant increase in GDP, 2.4%. China will shape the course of the 21st century. Nevertheless, it does have a comparable debt structure to the United States, around, in total, 350% of its GDP, and has its long, unprecedented boom stimulated by excessive credit creation and lending. It also has a great number of very large, inefficient state-run enterprises. And this list of difficulties could go on. But its export surpluses far lower wage levels, far higher levels of investment, far longer hours of intensive work of its population. It's opening up to the market system. 
yet with its overall system of tight control, have thus far given it significant advantage. In the United States political system, the different parties in Congress and Senate have been and are so divided as to paralyse the country in recent years. China does not experience such a problem. Please do not interpret this as condoning an authoritarian system. I am deeply committed to the encouragement of freedom, self-responsibility, critical thought, the preciousness of individuality, the development of character, and the institutions and traditions that defend these. If these are more difficult to maintain in the West, then that is the result of its internal dynamics. Its deterioration is self-imposed. This is simply a fact of our times. China, although by no means without its serious problems, and probably facing a financial collapse at some point in the near future, stands a better chance of survival in the times ahead. Manifestations of the economic crisis have then been exploding debt and extremely accommodating monetary policy, which are closely linked. But in addition, we have stagnation or a decline in global productivity since 2012. Productivity, not demand, is the motor of long-term economic growth and prosperity. Falling in negative productivity is a sign of stagnation and recession. It should not be happening in times of supposed economic growth. Information on this can be found in the World Bank report on the second link in the text preamble to the podcast and also on my website. If you read the highlight of this prestigious report, it reads, The COVID-19 pandemic struck the global economy after a decade characterised by a broad-based decline in productivity growth. Global labour productivity growth slowed from a peak of 2.7% in 2007, just before the global financial crisis, to a post-crisis trough of 1.5% in 2016. And it remained below 2% a year in 2017-18. The post-crisis slowdown in productivity was widespread, affecting around 70% of advanced economies and EMDEs home to over 80% of the global extreme poor. The productivity growth deceleration in the emerging markets and developing economies, the EMDs, was the steepest, longest and most synchronised since 1970, the report says, reflecting investment weakness and smaller efficiency gains in approximately equal measures. Up to half of the decline in labour productivity growth in advanced economies and EMDEs over 2013 to 18, reflected lasting trends beyond cyclical factors, i.e. there were long-term structural factors. There are many sources of this slowdown, the report continues. Working age population growth has decelerated. Educational attainment has stagnated. I believe in some key economies, incidentally, it's gone backwards. And the pace of expansion into more diverse and complex forms of production has lost momentum. Labour reallocation towards higher productivity sectors has historically accounted for about two-fifths of overall productivity growth in the EMDEs. This has weakened over the last decade. The global economy has been buffeted by a series of shocks, of which COVID-19 is the latest. Natural disasters, wars and major economic disruptions such as financial crises and deep recessions 
have tended to be accompanied by large and protracted declines in investment and labour productivity. Unquote. So long-term structural factors and crisis factors are affecting the supply capacity of the world economy and are pushing it into negative territory, declining productivity and low or negative growth rates. In other words, the crisis was long before the pandemic. Incidentally, the same story can be told with another comprehensive productivity measure, total factor productivity, if you read the report. It is perceptive of such a prestigious report that it concentrates on supply-side constraints and the necessity of supply-side reforms to supposedly remedy the underlying problem, rather than the dangerous mantra of the need to stimulate demand as the supposed answer. However, this misses out a key point, that government monetary policy erodes the price discovery mechanism by which the market economy functions. By creating vast sources of cheap and easy money, millions of firms are kept afloat precisely because interest rates are artificially low and resources in the economy are directed into unproductive pathways. Since this will take a whole podcast to elaborate, I will explain this in more detail in the future podcast, since it is core to understanding the collapse of productivity growth on a global scale and explains why current monetary and fiscal policies are undermining the economy and preparing the ground for an economic and financial collapse. To end this podcast, I will summarise the main points. The post-2007-8 global financial crash led to a new stage of capitalism in which massive government intervention in the financial system became the new paradigm. This was accomplished through cheap and abundant money, propping up the financial system at all costs. Moral hazard has increased enormously, that is encouraging people to engage in corrupt or unproductive or highly risky activities because they're going to be bailed out, essentially. Zombified companies and the zombified banking system have saturated the economy that is supported by government injections, cheap money, low interest rates and so on, have eviscerated or hollowed out the productive economy. Stock markets have become disconnected from the real economy. Inflation in many countries has taken place in financial assets, stock markets for example, and housing prices. There's been substantial increase in inequality, measured in both wealth and income, over a long period since the 1970s. This has increased in the last decade. There has been paralysed or declining productivity growth rates. And there has been astronomical and unpayable national debts and other debts, which are ruinous for the future. Finally, price discovery. The essence of the free market system has been substantially eroded. In the next podcast, I will continue this argument and move to the twin horsemen of the economic crisis, that of the financial, one of the most deadly of all.